The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a Saturday, brand new year. Hope that yours is off to a good start. Us, not so bad. And we're very happy to be once again in the good company of the man we like to call the dude. That's Michael Roberge. Mike, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning, guys, and happy new year. Happy, Happy New, New year, year to First you. First show of 2020. First show of the decade. I've never seen you, Mike, dance around with a lampshade on your head, but I thought this might be the year. You never saw me uh, 50 years ago. Aha. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I had several, and they were in, and a couple were always in my trunk of my car. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. What does that Mike, tell you? you, dog, you. And did you support yourself by seri- selling stereos out the back of your van? Or how well, did that work? I'm uh, trying to picture you 50 years ago. Grateful Dead? I, I was a salesperson. Junkie. I was a salesperson. Okay. that worked. <laughs> and we'll, we'll just leave it at that. How about that? <laughs> well, here in Florida, there are many import-export opportunities. There you go. As you know. <laughs> All right. We ought to put away this falderall. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Happy New Year to all of you. Whenever it gets to New Year, and I mean this, Mike, I'm serious, because you and I are pop culture buffs, Suzanne as well, There, it gets into January, and my mind turns to Elvis. January 8, 1935, Elvis Aaron Presley was born in Tupelo, Mississippi, 85 years ago. That is incredible, because I remember being excited by the whole Elvis phenomenon just before the Beatles showed up back in, uh, this would have been late 1963, and there were the, the Elvis songs, the number one hits, of course, the Elvis movies. That was a whole Elvis universe to inhabit before the British invasion led by the Beatles. Now, I don't mean to be completely disrespectful, but, you know, had he lived, would you imagine an 85-year-old Elvis swinging his hips on TV these days? Yes, because they're doing wonderful things with hip replacement surgery today. (laughs) And so maybe he would do swiveling the replacement, the titanium, he'd be the titanium king. (laughs) And of course, when we think of Elvis, we always go to the, the one and only expert who knows everything there is to know about Elvis. Corey Cooper. Let's go ahead and give him his mad props and get him on air. Renowned Elvis Presley historian Corey Cooper is a noted authority on the life and music of Elvis Presley, who regularly contributes to books, radio shows, movies, and television projects. He has um, been a contributor to E! Entertainment Online. As a sought-out authority on Presley, Cooper draws from his vast knowledge and his ties to others in the Elvis world. Included among his contacts are authors, band members, performers, and members of the Memphis Mafia with close the close group of bodyguards, friends, and employees that worked with and protected Elvis Presley. And so once again, actually for the 12th time, in our 13 years on air, we welcome Corey Cooper. How are you today, Corey? Oh, my God. <laughs> we're, we're more than happy to award that to you. If I can get a hold of either Tom Hanks or Steve Martin, they will be on hand to present it to you. you well, go. it looks like you have somebody there that might be able to get a few off the back of a truck. Oh, that's That's, that's Mike. That'd He's a clever dude. He is a clever dude. No question about that. We started talking about uh, 85 years ago, Elvis Presley was born. Corey, we want to celebrate all things Elvis. This is the anniversary, coming up on the anniversary of his birthday. But I do want to say this because it's a vivid memory. About, oh, I'm going to say it was no more than three or four days after Elvis Presley died prematurely to many of us at age 40. 
42. I remember reading in the newspaper, I want to say it was the New York Times, could have been the Washington Post, one of the biggies. And Corey, the editorial writer said, in a way, it's fitting that Elvis did not live to be an old man. People can still remember in his own generation what he was like with that incredible charisma of his and what a beautiful man he was in more ways than one, really. And they remembered that Elvis. If they saw Elvis at 60, at 70, at 80 or 85, it would be a complete picture, a more complete one. But I think a lot of people would have felt like, oh, I want to go back and remember him as he was. Has that ever occurred to you, the fact that he died at 42? And maybe you can look at it one way and saying that it was kind of perfect that he didn't live to be very old? Well, I mean, boy, that's certainly uh, both ends of the, of the rock there, because, you know, obviously we wanted him to be around forever. But, you know, passing away early certainly solidifies your legendary status as an icon. So, I mean, look what it's done with Marilyn Monroe and James Dean and Jim Morrison. You know, everybody that's one of those upper echelon superstars that stood out, they, when they passed away young, it just puts them all to a different level. I mean, I still think, obviously, Elvis would have been the legend that he is now if he had lived, but there's no doubt that he's going to be the status he is because he was only here for 42 short years. We've seen some of our favorite movie stars who have made it into their deep seniority going into not only their 80s, but their 90s. And then when I do see them on television or the movies, I'll say, oh, my gosh, you know, look at that. You know, look at what time does to a person. They're no longer spry and young and funny and all that. They're just, uh, um, you know, at the end. And it, it's just kind of a, a weird thing when I when I thought about, you know, would Elvis be on stage, you know, swiveling his hips and playing guitar at 85? You know, I don't know. Maybe just walking on a talk show and sitting and talking to somebody late at night. But it's hard to say, you know, what he would have been like as an oldster since he didn't really make it there. Well, that's true. But, you know, you got to look at some of the, the artists that are still out there now doing it. I mean, we you got Wayne Newton, you got Tony Bennett. You got Paul Anka, you know, I mean, Johnny Mathis, Smokey Robinson. I mean, all these legends are still out there, and all these guys are in their 70s, 80s. And look at Tony Bennett. What's Tony Bennett, 93, 94? He's in his 90s. So, I mean, I, you know, obviously there still would have been a stage for Elvis to be on. I mean, would we be seeing him, you know, in, in rhinestone, you know, jumpsuits and and rocking out like he used to. I mean, obviously, he would have slowed down some, but I still think he would have been performing. I think he would have really went into a lot of uh, music production and been behind the scenes on a lot of stuff, and then possibly maybe have finally gotten some movie parts that he really craved to have. That is a very strong argument, and I would just put a cap on it by saying two words, Rolling Stones. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. I mean, and it's amazing how Mick Jagger is still in, in very good shape. He's had some some cardiac work done in recent times. But, you know, when you look at uh, Keith Richards, good Lord. There's so you can make it go as long as Mother Nature allows before Father Time takes it all away. And in a way, I wanted to say that, you know, to try and look at Elvis from the long view. But we're really here during this hour to celebrate Elvis Elvis, the the vivid, the charismatic, the incredible 
personality that he was, incredible talent, and also just a man of enormous spirituality and generosity that made him beloved around the world, even though he didn't tour around the world for reasons that you can articulate, Corey. He stayed in North America, and yet his influence is felt all these years later, starting out, starting from dirt, and I mean Mississippi, Tupelo dirt, and I guess that's where it would be good for us to pick this up, Corey. Tupelo, Mississippi. I've been there. You've been there. There's a tableau in this park where his his boyhood home, his church, which was moved to that location. There's a statue of him, bronze statue holding a guitar. All of that is there to remind us, as you maintain, Corey, that with Elvis Presley, you see one of the great flowerings of the American dream. Well, absolutely. I mean, I don't think anybody has a more clear picture on the American dream from rags to riches than Elvis Presley. I mean, you know, the South, the charisma, the music, the time period, the look that he had, I mean, those humble beginnings and to end up being the biggest and most well-known entertainer in the history of music and entertainment. I mean, I don't even really think that's even an arguable point. You know, I mean, I can't remember exactly who it was that said this years ago, but the three most known things in the world were God, Elvis, and Coca-Cola. <laughs> Interesting. I'll tell you what I liked the very best about Tupelo, Corey. When we went there, and I, I've told you before, we, we went after Graceland. So we saw all the glitz and all the glamour of Graceland. And happily enough, they hadn't changed anything since the 70s, so that you also saw the decor of that time. And so that was, that was uh, also almost humorous because it would have been very nice maybe in the 70s, but you know not so much 20, 30 years later. But we went to Tupelo afterwards and we had to use a map and GPS and all that. It was actually not at all glitzy and glamorous. It was in a residential neighborhood. There were not a lot of cars there, a few, but not a lot. It, it's not the uh, it's not the shrine of Graceland, and so we had to slow down for the kids who were kicking a ball in the street and playing, and and you know let that happen. And it was full of homes, so you actually got to see the site of the home where other homes you know were built up around it, but. Um, but you did feel as though it, you could imagine his being there in the 1930s and in the 1940s growing up in that location because so little had changed about it. And I, and I liked the quiet, the quietude of Tupelo as much as I liked Graceland. What was your feeling when, when you went to Tupelo? Well, I, I did get a lot of what you were just saying as well. And it did kind of strike me that maybe not so much it looks too different, uh, that landscape now as it did 85 years ago as well. Um, I, there's still a lot of the same families that live in that area as well. There's still a lot of the original buildings. I mean, even Tupelo Hardware, where Ellis got his first guitar, is still there. And, it, I mean, you really see the, the quiet, cool little country town that it was and so yeah you go from there and then you see what well, you guys did at the opposite way which is kind of cool but you see the two contrasting areas where he spent his life and uh, yeah it really gives you a whole picture of how things really were for him 
You know, and to think too, you know, that that little two room house that you're seeing there was they were so poor that the money they borrowed that his father Vernon borrowed to build that was actually foreclosed upon. And so they didn't live in that home all that long. They ended up having to move in with other family members because they couldn't afford that to pay back the house that they built. And wow. let's remember Elvis was born January 8, 1935. We're talking about Dust Bowl days. We're talking about the Depression. So money was very hard to come by. And I say this with a certain admiration, though I don't recommend it to anyone. But God bless Vernon Presley as I think about him, Corey Cooper, because he did whatever he had to do to feed and shelter his family. Well, and also his mother Gladys did, too. I mean... Vernon at times didn't have the best, he might have had the best intentions, but he didn't always have the best work ethic. And uh, But Gladys, you know, his, his mother certainly had a better work ethic than Vernon. And uh, But going along those lines, as you say, you know, Vernon, to try to take care of the family, you know, sadly ended up in Parchment Penitentiary for a while because he altered a check to make it more money than it was. Um, because of the fact they were so broke, and he was trying to provide, and sadly that was the extreme means that he, he tried to use to help the family. But sadly that didn't help the family. It actually made it worse because now he was no longer in the picture, which I think solidifies a lot of the, the closeness you hear about with Elvis and his mother Gladys was because of the fact that Elvis was an only child, and then when he was very young, his father is now gone in prison. You know, Gary and I were talking a little bit about um, uh, his father, uh, Vern, Vernon? What, what, Vernon Preston. Vernon. We, we were talking a little bit about him, and I had forgotten that he did spend time in jail, shades of Les Miserables. But, um, but aside from that, what is your sense from your research about Vernon's relationship with Elvis, like before— uh, he was famous, and while he was, you know, in the army and and just beginning to get out there and and sing, do, do you have any information about that? Well, Elvis and his father had had a, a pretty good relationship, and they weren't they definitely were not as close and not on the same emotional levels as Elvis was with his mother Gladys. But you know, Elvis always took care of his father, and they did get along. The times they didn't get along mostly were was after Elvis was successful, and because Vernon, because of the fact they were poor, always had extreme issues, almost to the OCD-type level, when it came to money. And so, you know, Vernon would hound Elvis his entire life over finances and spending too much and buying too many gifts and cars and properties and, and jewelry and everything that Elvis did, and that, that became a problem the entire time of Elvis' Elvis's successful career. I don't think we've talked about that before, Corey. And so, you know, when Gary and I were just speculating among ourselves that, you know, we kind of wondered what that was like, that's a little bit of insight that I don't think we've discussed before, that uh, Vernon, having gone through the trials and tribulations of, you know, ha going to jail, trying to keep his family together with some extra money, um really was his his mindset was don't spend too much make sure you have enough make sure you know that that you can pay all your bills instead of giving it all away to people and um and Elvis didn't really follow that what his dad wanted him to do 
although I'm assuming Vernon was well taken care of as uh, as Elvis's father. He, he didn't, uh, you know, allow him to want for anything, did he? Oh, no. Elvis absolutely took care of his father. His father never had to worry about anything. I mean, in fact, you know, Elvis's father, who I believe only went to the third or fourth grade, was actually hired by Elvis to be like his business manager and and take care of the money. And Elvis paid him back in those days, back in the 60s and 70s, like $75,000 a year salary. But, of course, he got wow. a million perks other than that as well. And, and yeah. Elvis was always giving out money, and he bought Vernon homes and cars. And, I mean, there was no want on anything on, on Vernon's side, definitely. But there was still always going to be that money issue, and that's always going to come from somebody that, that was raised and, and lived through the Depression and grew up in those humble right. beginnings like that. Yes. Absolutely. And though Vernon Presley could not be accused of being a good businessman, nevertheless, I found it touching. There, I stood and I remember spending more time. I kind of got behind in this tour loop. When you go to Graceland, there it, it's electronic. You put on the headset and you go from room to room. Well, I was way behind because I wanted to linger in various spots. And one of them was at an office that Elvis had built for his father. And I thought, what a touching thing to do for your dad. The man was not a businessman, but in Graceland, he had his own little office there. Yeah, he did. You know, and, and it's and the, they may have changed. I haven't been back there in a few years, but I believe it probably still looks exactly the same way as it was set up when Vernon was actually in there, which is neat to see that little time capsule like that. And the, the I don't know if you guys noticed, too, that the, the little room next to it, it's a separate room, but it's all made of brick. It was like an old smokehouse. And Elvis and the guys used to use that for target practicing. And if you go in there and look, you'll still see all kinds of little chips and everything and the bricks and the wood <laughs> and everything else from where they shot the place up target practicing. Well, that's what they did when they were bored with shooting a TV to death. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, they also they also caught Graceland on fire one time with a bottle rocket that got stuck up underneath the foundation. They were having bottle rocket fights. They used to wear football helmets and chase each other around shooting bottle rockets at each other. And I uh, definitely don't recommend that to anybody, but they, they caught Graceland on fire one time, and one of the maids came out yelling that the house was on fire. They didn't even skip a beat. They ran over jammed a garden hose up to, by the foundation where the smoke was coming out, went back to the bottle rocket fight. <laughs> what a lively place, Graceland. How old was Elvis Presley when, now he's very successful, the world knows about Elvis, the women are crazy, the, the men are imitating him, everybody loves him, well, virtually, everybody loves his music or is willing to listen to it. A lot of, I think he had 30 number one hits overall. But at what point did Elvis decide, okay, when I'm ready to settle down, i got to put down some roots here and have a house of my own, and so bought the property that became Graceland? Well, he bought that in 1957. There was actually a home that he bought for his parents when, he, when his career first started out when he was making money that's in Memphis as well on Audubon Drive. And, but they only lived there for about a year, and they just outgrew that place because the neighbors were getting upset as well because it was like right smack dab in the middle of a residential area. And, of course, you can just see the, you know, every single day just tons and tons and tons of fans and screaming girls outside the, you know, the gates every single day. So they only lasted there about a year, and Elvis realized, we better get a little bit further out of town with some more property. So, uh, you know, we're not... <laughs> having riots ensue in a neighborhood with all the neighbors. 
Did he build that house, or was it already built? No, the home was built in 1939. Um, the property okay. had been around. The property had been around for a long time. Uh, there was a man named Mr. Toof, T-O-O-F, that bought the property, and he was a, uh, a successful like printing businessman in the Memphis area. And when he passed away, uh, the property he named the, the, the area Graceland was named after a family member. I believe it was his daughter. And then after he passed away, it went uh, to an, a niece who kept the property and then built the home in 1939, which actually at times ended up being a church as well. You know, Corey, I was just doing the math here on a piece of paper. If he was born in 1935 and he bought Graceland in 1957, he was only 22 years old when he bought that house. Yeah, for and, a little over $100,000, which doesn't seem like all that yeah. much for what it is, but can you imagine 1957, $100,000? Well, yeah. Well, they'd be like a million today, I'm sure, at least. But the other thing is, he died in 1977, which means he lived there 20 years. Now, I know he, he did a lot of traveling but uh, and, and owned other homes, but it means he bought it at 22 owned it for 20 years, and so half of his life was um, had, the, had that address. And that, that kind of surprised me, because, you know, I know you said he moved around a little bit, and then he owned other homes in different places, but Graceland itself, he would have had half of his life. Absolutely. And he always kept that as his main base, even though he did have other homes. You know, over the years, he had numerous different homes in Bel Air and Beverly Hills and the Brentwood area and in Palm Springs. But Memphis was always home base, and that's where he always felt the most at home. You know, he grew up there since age 13. Everybody knew when Elvis was in town. And, he, and as famous as he was, he was pretty much left alone. I mean, he could go out and ride his motorcycles, and he could go to a restaurant in town. He could do a lot of the stuff there that he didn't do in the other places because he just wouldn't be mobbed like he would be in the other places, and he just felt more comfortable. I had another question listening to Corey. I forgot. That's okay. I, and on the other side of a break, which we'll take in a couple of minutes, I want to talk about the music of Elvis Presley, the movies too, and the influences on Elvis. But before we do that, there, and Graceland kind of gets woven like a thread through about any oh, conversation you have. I remember. Give it to him before. Before you forget again. Uh, I wanted to know if he named it Graceland or if the prior owner did. No, it was already Graceland before Elvis bought it, but he liked the okay. name, so he kept it out of respect okay. and the fact that he thought it sounded great. Which okay, it did good. and does. Thank you. And so uh, another note on Graceland. In 2013, Suzanne and I did the tour, and I was lingering from room to room. I really wanted to tattoo it on my brain. The thing that I came away with, among many other impressions, but one that sticks out, Corey, is that if you go through the house, it is almost impossible to explain it as a theme or a motif. It seems like the various rooms were decorated by Elvis Presley and a lot probably by Priscilla as well, to be honest, in a way that suited their mood. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to go uh, old-fashioned colonial or we're going for Southern charm. It, it, every room seems to have its own personality. Well, and that's true. And what you also see, which a lot of people don't realize, too, when you take that tour, the way you're seeing Graceland is the way that Priscilla remembered it and how it looked when she lived there with Elvis when they were married. So the blue and the white and, and that kind of colors is 
the way it looked in the 60s and early 70s. Now, after they uh, sadly got divorced and Elvis had a long-term relationship with Linda Thompson, then it was decorated in a, in a red motif, which was all gotten rid of when they opened up Graceland for tours and went back to the way as Priscilla remembered it, which makes sense to me. Yes, yes, it does. And a word about Linda Thompson. Don't know much about that relationship, but it turns out within the past week or so, did she not give a very valuable piece of jewelry to her son that she got from Elvis? She did. She gave to her son Brody a... Elvis had necklaces he gave out to friends and close uh, family members and people on his entourage called a TCB necklace and a lightning bolt, which was his motto that stood for taking care of business in a flash. And Linda gifted her son Brody for Christmas, uh, one of the original ones that was Elvis. It's encrusted with diamonds, too, of course, because it can't just be the normal one. It's Elvis, you know, so it had to be encrusted with diamonds. Not available on eBay. (laughs) That is amazing. We are here with Corey Cooper. He is an exceptional man in his own right. He has a passion for all things Elvis. He loves to share about the king of rock and roll, and you can't stump the guy know-how. He is the man in the know. We'll continue our conversation with Corey Cooper on the other side of a short break. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to the home of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. No, you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. 
We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Nance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Giving local voices a chance to shine. Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. We are talking with Elvis expert Corey Cooper. If people are all into Elvis the way you are, Corey, how can they connect with you? What is the, the best way for them to reach you? Well, uh, you know, I'm an old man with a flip phone still, and so I'm also on AOL. No big shock there, but you can always get me, ElvisExpert at AOL.com. All right, ElvisExpert at AOL.com if you, you want to reach Corey Cooper and, and chat about the king. Corey, I'd love to talk about the musical influences on Elvis and his influence on others. And, of course, we want to leave time to talk about the movies because they were fun. When it comes to music, I found out only recently, because I'm not the expert that you are, I just pick up tidbits a lot of the time, but Elvis was very excited to meet one of the formative people in his musical life, and that was a gentleman by the name of Roy Hamilton. Don't Let Go, the biggest hit I know of from Roy Hamilton, and I, I, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling one on myself, Corey, I used to listen to that on the radio, Top 40, and they'd have the oldies, and Don't Let Go was playing. And I thought, well, that sounds like Elvis, so obviously he influenced whoever this Roy Hamilton was. No, no, no. It turns out that Roy Hamilton had that sort of virility in his voice, kind of a lurid lilt, as I like to say. And Roy Hamilton, it turns out, was quite the influence on Elvis. Absolutely. And, you know, that was a huge influence for Elvis. So was Jackie Wilson. Uh, so was a lot of blues artists, and probably most importantly to Elvis was the the gospel quartet, you know, the Blackwood Brothers, J.D. Sumner, and uh, that's what Elvis used to love to try to sneak into and listen to. And as you guys know as well, that was Elvis's favorite music was gospel. And that really stops people when they hear that, because there's practically nobody that has not heard a gospel to how great thou art, for example, sung by Elvis Presley. That influence, and when you go to Tupelo, you really see that up close and personal. That was a huge influence on him from a very young age. Absolutely. And in fact, which I always find kind of endearing and then kind of angering, is that the only Grammys that Elvis ever won was for gospel music. And he was only nominated for a Grammy 14 times and only won three. Now, here you have the biggest selling artist in the history of recorded music, and it's Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. And for one, he's only nominated 14 times, and the only ones he wins are for gospel. So that's kind of angeringly ironic. How old was he when he started singing in church, Corey? Oh, he was he was very tiny. I mean, they, you know, he was raised... Southern Baptist, and they used to go to church, of course, and Elvis would sing in the choir, and so at a very young age, he was very influenced heavily by that, and also in Tupelo, he would go to a, a black section of town called Shake Rag and listen to the old blues musicians there, and, and some of which helped him to learn the guitar. 
Uh, is it likely that um, his parents also went to the black church, or do you think Elvis kind of went off there on his own? Oh, no, if, Elvis if, went on his own. I mean, they, they okay. went to Southern Baptist churches, but Elvis used to love to go and listen to the black gospel quartet in church. And I'm, and I'm thinking in the 1930s and 40s, it was probably segregated. Uh, I would definitely th- think so, especially in Tupelo, Mississippi. But right. you know, and, El- Elvis was colorblind with all that stuff, so that didn't matter to Elvis. Elvis was all about the music and how people were as a human being towards each other. You know, nothing else mattered to Elvis. Well, that's yeah. kind of where I was going to go with that. I mean, if he went to where the black quartet, gospel quartet, was singing, he would have been the only white person maybe in the black church. But as you said, he was he was definitely colorblind. And um, do, is there any record of his having young black friends when he was growing up? Uh, you know, I, I don't. You, you've finally stumped me, Suzanne. I don't oh, know on that. Ding, 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 I don't God. know on that oh, specifically, but uh, you know, <laughs> but Elvis did oh, over his entire life did, did have have black friends, of course. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And a little known fact too: Elvis actually uh, dated one of his background singers for a little while too. They ended up marrying one of his Memphis Mafia members named Jerry Schilling. And, uh, okay. But you know. Well, well, then he, he really you know, you was a think. colorblind person. He was not at all racist, even though he grew up, you know, in a white Baptist church. For him, it was about the music. It wasn't about the color of the person who was playing it or singing it. Absolutely. And, and that leads me to ask, here's my opening. The, the I'm sure it was the number one hit, too. In the Ghetto, that was Elvis Presley making a statement. And for him... I don't know if it was difficult or not, Corey, but I can see where he would have to be careful how he presented his views because it was a time when we were riven with dissension in this country anyway. The civil rights movement was going strong, Vietnam War, all of that. But for Elvis Presley, he had already built a kind of pop culture multiverse around himself. And he was the, he was the shining star in the middle of it, of all of it. And yet there was something apparently he felt he needed to say about the issue of race relations. Well, absolutely. And when Elvis wanted to do In the Ghetto, which was written by Mac Davis, you know, Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, was against it because of the fact that he didn't want Elvis to be making some type of political statement and alienate the fans. But I I don't think it alienated the fans at all. I think it, 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 it put everybody together. You know, I don't think it was polarizing. I think it was a great statement. People realized, hey, you know, it's about the music and and the love of each other, regardless of anything else. And along with In the Ghetto and also If I Can Dream, which was the last song that Elvis sang in his 1968 singer special, which some people call the comeback special, was another uh, song about the social injustices and the negativity in the world and how people need to come together and get along and love each other. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it was fantastic he did these things. And I, I, I think along his career, along with going into the military and being the, the very generous person he was and staying close to his roots, endeared himself with people and the fans. And I think that's another reason why he stood out so much was because of that. And then now he's coming out and he's making these statements, whether, you know, somewhat passively or not, but he was making these statements and saying, look, you know, let's make this world better. I mean, how can you go against that? 
You know, when you talk about the the songs that you're mentioning where he was um, trying to bring people together as opposed to dividing them, none of that really bothered me. But I think if I was ever brought up short with regard to Elvis when he was alive, it was uh, hearing that he was taking a lot of drugs. And that was more of a turnoff than, than anything else that he got caught up in that. And um, do you know how long that had been going on? I mean, did you know how that started or, or how long it lasted? Well, a lot of people believe it started when Elvis was in the military, that he was given uppers so he could stay awake on watch. And, um, you know, and one thing about that, I mean, obviously, I mean, we're nobody's a fan of Elvis Presley because he had substance abuse problems. I mean, you know, nobody nobody's a fan of that. And, uh, but you got to think, I mean, look at the pressures that just us normal civilians in life have, just being an adult and trying to just live your life day to day. I mean, look how crazy it can get for us. Now, none of us can imagine being Elvis Presley and what that entails and what that means. You know, now here's a guy that didn't drink because there was a lot of alcoholism in his family. So Elvis didn't really drink ever. And the media gets that wrong a lot of times. But, you know, he had a problem with prescribed legal medications from doctors. And that was his outlet. And, you know, and he somewhat tricked himself into thinking that you know, if it's prescribed by a doctor, then it's all okay. And he was kind of, you know, raised that way as well. So that's how he got away from some of the pressures to wind down. And sadly, it just got out of control. Yeah. But, you know, if, if we took that example, that we wouldn't, you know, I mean, like I said, nobody's a fan of that. And if we took right. that example with everybody in the entertainment world, there would be so many oh, people God. that none of us would be watching or listening to. No, no, no. And, I, and, I, and I'm not saying that I no, wouldn't no. watch and I, and listen no, and to I totally get your point. Like, I get like your with point. Like Whitney, with Whitney Houston, I loved Whitney Houston, but then it was like there was kind of an edge taken off of my admiration for her voice and her singing to you know, find out that, you know, that she was into drugs hardcore. I did not know that Elvis didn't drink. That kind yeah, of uh, surprises very me. Very rare. Very, very rare. You know, if he did, yeah. he might sip some champagne. He might right. sip on maybe a screwdriver. But alcohol just was not, just was not his thing at all. Right. But if you visited Graceland, there's yeah. no way in the world you wouldn't be invited to open the fridge and grab a soda pop. <laughs> Or Elvis's favorite water, Mountain Valley Spring Water, still in business. How do you like oh, that really? plug, Mountain Valley Spring Water? <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic. When people go to Graceland, by the way, it's amazing how they have some rotation of exhibits because there's a lot on Elvis Planet, right? Planet Elvis, I like to say. When you go across the street from the home itself, we were there in July of 2013, and they had an Elvis car exhibit, including the car he drove through the gates of Graceland for the last time the morning of his passing. And Priscilla contributed a sleek sedan, really nice, nice black sedan, and they had multiple cars there, and they had the tractor there that uh, his crazy uncle used to like to ride around the property because it was fun to do. And then you go to... Um, out to where the plane is. I don't know if it's still there, but they had a plane that Elvis owned, and he owned more than one. But this one, they 
have positioned there across the road near the parking area. And you go walking through it, and it's amazing to see that the soda pop was available. There was a, it might have been a queen, I don't know about a king, should have been a king mattress, but a, a large bed there. And FAA regulations actually required that you have a seatbelt all the way across the mattress of the bed. <laughs> Just, I looked at that and I was amazed. Yeah, isn't that great? Well, hey, you don't want to be all shook up. Oh, we waited all hour to say that, I'll bet. And I think Gary, my perfect straight man. Yes, exactly. I'll set you up there. I believe that also was the plane. When you walk through it, you can linger, you know, and as I recall, I can't remember what it is. You can't photograph everything when you're there because there were some pictures that I just couldn't take. It's just hard for me to remember exactly what it was. Glass in the airplane. So that there, the flash photography was discouraged. Right, you there were they were like you, you could see like the the bed and the different things, but then they had a a glass in front of it, so you couldn't actually you know touch it or get into the bed. Right, right. But there was a little storyboard there, Corey. I'm sure you recall it, where one time, because Lisa Marie said to Daddy that she had never been in the snow, she'd never seen snow, so she had never had the chance to play in it. And he took an ocean. He had the pilot fly him out, I believe it was, to Colorado so Lisa Marie could experience snow. Yeah, absolutely. That's Elvis. Boy, that is classic Elvis, isn't it? And, and, and this is another great thing, too, Gary and Suzanne. I love that one of Elvis's private pilot's names was Milo High. Ah. Oh, my God, really? Isn't that fantastic? Sadly, he's no longer around, but one of his other pilots, Ron Strauss, is, and sometimes he makes some of the Elvis event circuits, and he's really a neat, interesting guy to listen to with his stories. Well, we've got about 10 minutes to go, so let's go ahead and get into the movies. Now, you mentioned earlier Colonel Tom Parker, and here's a little clue for you all. Colonel Tom Parker was about as much of a colonel as Colonel Sanders. <laughs> but he had this outsized influence on Elvis Presley, who it is said was loath to fire anyone, especially face to face. And that helped explain the longevity of Colonel Tom Parker, who had a unique financial arrangement and pushed Elvis in the direction of making these movies. Tell us more about all of that, Corey. Sure. Uh, you know, after Elvis got out of the Army in 1960, uh, Colonel Tom Parker had made these contracts with the movie studios where Elvis made about three of these uh, movies a year that went on basically for almost the entire decade of the 60s. Um, and other than that, Elvis really wasn't really recording much of any kind of original material except music soundtracks. Now, it's, this isn't really what Elvis wanted to do, but um, the thing was, he had some... <laughs> very successful music from the soundtracks and every single one of the movies made a profit so it was a good deal all around except for the fact that it really wasn't what Ellis wanted to do at the time and after 1967 uh, a new contract was negotiated where Colonel Tom Parker got 50% of what Ellis was making so which is an unheard of deal I mean that's insanity and but you know Elvis had a sense of loyalty, and Elvis had a sense of hey, the old man's been here the whole time, and just uh, just didn't get rid of him. And there have been times where they had disagreed and got in arguments, and Elvis would say he was going to fire him, and then Colonel Parker would present Elvis with an itemized bill of what he said he was owed, and then Elvis would just say you know it's not worth it and keep him on. And so he did for the rest of his life. 
And uh, personally with me, I think as good as Colonel Parker did, I equally think he did just as bad. And a probate court judge in Shelby County, Tennessee, thought the same thing. And so uh, after Elvis had passed away, the estate wanted to keep Colonel Parker on. And the probate judge had had their investigator look into the finances, and they had seen and proven excuse me, how horrible Elvis had been mismanaged by Colonel Parker. So yeah. he was then forbidden to have any kind of control over this image and likeness of Elvis Presley. But yeah. Colonel Parker being Colonel Parker, and that he was an illegal immigrant and wasn't even supposed to be in America, basically didn't think anybody could do anything to him, and they settled, and Parker still ended up getting a $2 million payout. Wow. That's because Colonel Tom Parker, in my view, had the steel nerves of a carny. He knew how to work people. Absolutely. And then he still stayed friends with Priscilla and Lisa Marie. And a couple of years after that, it all happened. Uh, Colonel Parker made a deal to Elvis Presley Enterprises and sold back a couple of million dollars worth of memorabilia back to the estate as well. So this is just a whole crazy scenario. Well, he made out okay. And in his later years, he could be seen in Kino lounges and maybe card rooms in Las Vegas where you could go up, talk to him, get an autograph, and you would encounter Colonel Tom Parker. He became a fixture in Las Vegas at the casinos. Yes, he did. And he lived until 1997 and passed away at the age of 87. So he was still around just a couple of decades ago. Wow, 20 years past Elvis. Exactly. How much older than Elvis was he? He was about 25 years older than Elvis. Okay. Ah, okay. I wanted to get back to the movies here, Corey. In Jailhouse Rock, and this speaks to Elvis's secret or maybe not-so-secret ambition, I think it's one that he would have described as largely unfulfilled because of the, the fun and, and kind of wacky and musical character pop rock of his movies. There have been in Jailhouse Rock, people who make movies watched that. They watched Elvis perform, and they said, this guy can act. Well, absolutely. And then the, move, the next movie after that was King Creole, which was Elvis's favorite. And, um, you know, in Jailhouse Rock, they, the famous dance scene Elvis helped choreograph. And that film was actually added to the National Film Registry about 15 years ago as well. Oh. And for Elvis to be in the movies was one thing, but he wanted to be seen as a serious actor. I think he had a great admiration, and who doesn't, for Marlon Brando. Sure, and, and you can see glimpses of what could have been for Elvis with the right roles. You know, in King Creole, Flaming Star, Wild in the Country... You know, even change a habit. His last movie, you could you could see how good it could have been if he would have got the right roles. But uh, you know, they just didn't want to fix something that wasn't broken. And uh, you know, right. I mean, these movies were making so much money. But you know, after those contracts ended, you see Elvis, you know, in Vegas, just you know, lighting the world on fire. There was a lot of energy in, well, in all of his movies, but there was a a very pop culture kind of energy to Viva Las Vegas. And Margaret's there. Bill Bixby was there, a, a fine character actor. But you go to Las Vegas, I think that helps stamp in people's minds the idea that Las Vegas was a good place for Elvis to be. Yeah, boy, he certainly helped put Vegas on the map, didn't he? I mean, when you think of, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that knows anything about Las Vegas. If the first three or four things you, you think about is not included 
Elvis somewhere along the line. And it makes sense to me because Elvis was bigger than life and Las Vegas has always aspired to be larger than life, and they both made it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and from 1969 to 1976, Elvis spent two four-week engagements there. So, you know, Elvis spent, you know, over a little over a year of his life in Las Vegas from 69 to 76. Was it always the same time of year? I mean, is there a, like a season in Las Vegas for the big shows? They, they, there was there was a, a summer and a spring session with Elvis. I see. Okay. He also is much loved in Hawaii. And I want to make sure I'm clear about this because there's so much that you can credit to Elvis Presley. Was he instrumental, Corey, in the funding of the Arizona Memorial? He absolutely was. Uh, the Hawaii State Parks Department didn't have the funds to finish the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor. So Elvis, in 1961, did a, a, a series of a couple of concerts and all the proceeds from those shows were given to the state so they could finish uh, that monument. And so it's it's just it's amazing all the stuff Elvis did. You know, and, and another little known fact too is that Elvis was the first celebrity to help endorse the uh, you know medical research and Elvis was the first celebrity inoculated with a polio vaccine from Dr. John Salk. Really? And he wow. did that because he, he wanted to, he wanted people to see that if, if he was getting the inoculation, it was safe. And so can you think of how many people might have been saved wow. from the fact yeah. that Elvis did that? That's yeah. great. Yeah, that is amazing. I had never heard that before. Hmm. Yes, there, there was the so The little much. known facts that Corey Cooper has are just amazing. Uh, the good that he was willing to do. I always like to talk about standing there in Graceland. I'm sure I have a picture of it. You know, I probably have a flash on it there, but nevertheless, I wanted a photo of the framed checks, every one of them for $1,000. If you put your hand out and you represented some charity, Elvis didn't ask that many questions. He was a generous soul and he would write you a check for $1,000. Absolutely. And, you know, as we spoke before, you know, Elvis, just in Memphis alone, Elvis donated to 50 charities every year. That's just in Memphis. That's not saying that the, the police organizations he donated to, uh, youth centers that were built with his funding, numerous just individuals that he gave money to or bought items that they needed and medical equipment. Uh, you know, when singer Jackie Wilson sadly had some medical issues, uh, Elvis helped pay some of his medical bills. I mean, Elvis was just there to try to help out, you know. He didn't worry so much about the money because he knew he, he would be okay, but he wanted to give back. And I, I don't think he ever forgot ever where he came from. And he wanted other people to just smile and be happy. And this came from a man who yielded 50% of the profits to his manager, unheard of. Colonel Tom Parker had quite the sweet deal, especially when you consider, and I learned this from you, Corey, all the expenses came from Elvis's side. Yeah, isn't that fantastic? And get this. You know who did Elvis's taxes every year? Oh no! <laughs> the IRS. <laughs> Elvis didn't oh, hire some sense. CPA firm. The IRS did Elvis's taxes, and he paid in the highest bracket possible oh, every oh, year. God. Oh my goodness! So they sent him a letter when they got the check saying thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> And okay, so we celebrate. That was yours, Gary. <laughs> yeah, we celebrate Elvis. Eighty-five years ago, a great light in the world was born, a pop culture light, a king, the king of rock and roll. Corey, we always delight.
delight in talking to you. I can't wait for our next visit. Well, thank you, guys. As always, Gary, Suzanne, you guys are always a beacon to keep the spirit of Elvis and the music and the stories and the great nature that he was alive, and I always appreciate coming on here. So thank you, guys, and happy birthday, Elvis. Happy All birthday right. to Elvis Presley. Stay we are tuned. done for today. Stay yes, tuned. Stay tuned for uh, Jupiter Rising. Fantastic. We love our Join good friend Eileen Grimes, Doug Johnston. Good times, everybody. Happy New Year once again. We'll be back next Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.